0: Well, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the book of Philippians. We are, of course, continuing our series in the book of Philippians. We're now in chapter 3, and just a brief update, uh, just a refresher in terms of where we've been so far. The Apostle Paul is... Oh, it might help if I turn on my mic. <laughs> there we go. That's much better. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter, and he's writing this letter to this church in Philippi, this Greek city... And he's writing to update them on his situation and his imprisonment. He's also writing to encourage them in the midst of the persecution that they're enduring and also the disunity that they're struggling with that's in their midst. And so he's, he's, he's done a number of things. He's spoken of the glories of who Christ is, and he's spoken of the, the glories of the gospel and how he's so thrilled to see how the gospel has been advancing in In Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, and he's exhorted them to live in a manner worthy of the gospel through this Christ like mindset of humility. And now he turns another corner in this letter and he wants to give them final exhortations. And one of the exhortations here is he's going to warn them about false teachers who are in their midst, who are subverting the gospel. And so if you found your place, Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. And Lord, we ask now that you would help us to understand your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, many of us, to get a job, have submitted a uh, SESL. What's the SESL? That's a, that's a self-exalt, self-exaltation summary log, otherwise known as a resume. <laughs> if I could use a little bit of political humor, we all channel, channel our inner Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, I'm the greatest. No one's ever been as great as I am at that I can tell you. If you look in the dictionary, you'll find my name under awesome. You'll see it three times. It's everywhere. I'm tremendous. That's what we do on <laughs> that I can tell you. <laughs> That's what we do with our resumes. And the reality, though, is not just with work resumes. And there's maybe it's sort of some purpose. We have to kind of do that. But the reality is we're all in the habit of resume building. When we meet people. We tell them about all the good things about us. We tell them, you know, we don't tell them the bad things. We tell them all the good things about us. It's, and in the, the mindset, it's almost like, listen, I'm, I'm a really great person. You would be crazy not to like me. That's kind of what we do. And then some of us, all the folks, though, who are seasoned by reality and uh, in, in life, I mean, we hit maybe about the age 50, we say, you know what? Uh, yeah, this is me. Take it or leave it. I'm really not concerned about what people think about me and and you know we kind of wear that in our clothing as well you know guys um, socks with sandals might be comfortable but please please just stop 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 Uh, ladies never mind I'm not gonna touch that one I'll let you I'm not touching that one I'm not brave enough to touch that one but the same is true spiritually What we do is spiritually, we amass our spiritual resume, those things that we think are gonna make us look great before God and before others. And everybody does it, everybody on the face of the planet, whether you're a believer, whether you're religious, whatever the case is, we're all amassing our spiritual resume of the things that we think make us look more righteous than other people. So even the atheist has his spiritual resume. For the atheist, they're like, listen, religion, I, I believe in science. And religion is just a crutch for the weak-minded. That's what religion is. And then you have the morally good person. The morally good person says, listen, all this God talk, you stop getting so you know, upset, so anxious, and so, so zealous for God. Just, listen, all that matters is that you're a good person, that you treat other people good. And by the way, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, like that's in the Bible. No, it's not. And then there's the religious person who boasts in his good works and rituals that he thinks makes him acceptable to God. And we could go on to different categories of people, but I think that's pretty much the broad, the broad uh, spectrum there that captures just about everybody. And the reality is, is that all those different kinds of people have the same thing in common. It's the same gospel. It's the same false gospel. It's the gospel of self-righteousness. I'm righteous in myself. And I don't need to rely wholly and completely upon God. I am righteous in myself. Thank you very much. And so I'm trusting in myself. For those who are quote unquote not religious, for those who are atheists or agnostics, they're, they're trusting in themselves. For those who are morally good, they're trusting in their moral goodness. And of course, for the religious person who's trusting in their good works. Trusting in self. In our text today, the apostle porn, he warns the Philippians about those who would put forward their spiritual resumes that reveal that their confidence was in their own righteousness for acceptance before God. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you have this resume here, Now, I'm going to refute that. I'm going to show you my resume before Christ to show you how there's no way that you could ever be justified before a holy God on the basis of your own righteousness. And then Paul says he does that, and he he talks about how he came to realize how worthless all of that was compared to knowing and gaining Christ and the righteousness that is ours through faith in Christ alone. And so the main idea of our passage this morning is this, since nothing compares to knowing Christ, our confidence must be in Christ alone. Since nothing compares to knowing Christ, nothing, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world, right? Since nothing compares to knowing Christ, our confidence must be in Christ alone for our right standing before God. Two points I want us to look at uh, this morning, and of course, this is I was going to try to preach this all in one sermon, but I figured this would be an hour-and-a-half sermon, and you don't want to hear that, so we're going to break this passage up into two parts. So our first point this morning is our confidence must not be in ourselves. Now, in verse 1, you see the Apostle Paul, he begins really to conclude this letter, right? He says, finally, my brothers. It's like, okay, he's getting ready to wrap this up, and he and he's and in light of all that he's told them about the glories of who Jesus is, and a need to, this need for Christ-like humility as they face opposition from the culture and the disunity that they were struggling with in their midst, he tells them simply, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, he's going to go back to this in chapter 4, so we're going to deal with that some more, but this idea of the joy of the Lord, this deep inner sense of of joy and happiness and contentment, or we might call shalom, of, of flourishing that you have that isn't dependent upon the circumstances of life. And it's it based upon who Jesus is and who you are united to Christ through the spirit-wrought faith union that you have as one united to Christ. You have this the joy of the Lord. Christ is your joy. So he's, his point here is don't focus on all of these circumstances. Don't focus on yourself, but rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord who has created the heavens and the earth. Rejoice in the Lord who stepped down out of the glories of heaven to die on the cross to save hopeless sinners like you and like me. Rejoice in the Lord who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light and has filled you to overflowing with His Holy Spirit and who's working in you to both will and to work His good pleasure. Rejoice in the Lord for all that you have. Rejoice in the Lord for the amazing grace of God that's been given to you, not because of your righteousness, but because of His love and His righteousness how could we not rejoice in the Lord? We could preach a whole sermon just talking about the many reasons we should rejoice in the Lord. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord, but then something happens. It seems as though maybe Paul was thinking about those things, but then something else comes to his mind. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Evidently, what he's about to tell them, he's told them before. And what he's gonna tell them, he's told other churches before. The churches in Galatia. And so Paul here, with the gospel in mind, he digresses. He gives what I'll call an Italian goodbye. The Italian goodbye is, for Italians, it usually takes about a half an hour. You say goodbye, and then it's like, yeah, I just thought about something else. And then you got the million hugs and the kisses, and it takes, it takes a while to say goodbye. And so, Paul here, he, has, he gives what I've made, mean, you know, the, the Italian goodbye. He digresses. And now he wants to warn them about these false teachers. Look at what he says in verse 2. Look out. <laughs> right? He goes, Rejoice. Now look out. Look out for the dogs. The dogs. This was a derogatory term that, that the Jewish people would, 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 would call Gentiles, non Jewish people. Look out for the dogs. They're unclean. These are unclean. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This mutilating of the flesh had to do with these pagan religions that they would cut themselves, mutilate their flesh in order to appease the gods, make themselves right before God. Now, Paul here, who as you can see has a hard time really telling us how he feels about these people. Uh, Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about this, Group of Jewish believers in Christ called Judaizers. Called Judaizers. Judaizers, they believed in Jesus. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. They trusted in Jesus, but faith in Jesus wasn't enough. They had a Jesus plus works gospel. In order to be saved, you have to not only believe in Jesus, but you also have to do all of these works, all of these religious works, and all of these rituals. You have to put yourself back under the law of Moses and all the rituals that you find back there, especially the ritual of circumcision. Circumcision was absolutely central to the Old Covenant religion. Now, what in the world is circumcision? And it's helpful for us to kind of plant down here for a moment so we can understand these things. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the bloody cutting off of the foreskin of the flesh of the male reproductive organ. Ouch. I'm so glad that we don't live under the old covenant anymore. But that's what it was. And it was a sign and seal of the covenant that God gave to Abraham and his household. Remember, with Abraham, God called Abraham out of the land of the Chaldees, and, he, and he, remember he showed them the stars of the sky... And Abraham was really old. His body was as good as dead, dead. and God promised Abraham, so I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than all the stars in the sky. Can you count the stars? No, I can't count the stars. I'm going to make your descendants more numerous than all the stars in the sky. Even though you're really, really old, your body's as good as dead. Do you believe that, Abraham? I believe. Yes, Lord. Abraham believed, and what does Genesis say? He believed, and God counted, counted to him as what? righteousness. And then God said, here's the sign I want you to to, to, to have for, for the promise here, the covenant sign of the gospel, in essence. You need to be circumcised, not just you, but all of your household and all of your children after you. This is the sign of the covenant. This is the sign that you are in union now with the Lord, and it's a sign of entrance into the covenant community. It also pointed to a bigger, a greater spiritual reality, what the Old Testament would talk about, the circumcision of the heart, of of being spiritually reborn, see, because we have hearts of stone. We're, We're opposed to God. And so this circumcision, the physical circumcision, it was a sign and seal of our union with the Lord. It was a sign and seal of their entrance into the covenant community, and it pointed to this deeper spiritual reality. Unfortunately, the Israelites had turned this into just a mere practice where they said, well, listen, as long as you're circumcised, that means you're automatically righteous. And so we know how that went for Israel. Now, with this thing with circumcision, here we need to understand Jesus now has fulfilled everything that is represented by circumcision. So in Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says this, In him that is Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That's by the Spirit. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What is the circumcision of Christ? The circumcision of Christ ultimately is Christ's work on the cross. In his bloody sacrifice on the cross, Jesus was cut off. He was forsaken by God as he became what we are in our sin. Dogs, uncircumcised, unclean evildoers, rightly cut off and forsaken by God. And Christ now has brought in the new covenant, the new covenant, where the covenant sign of circumcision now, the bloody sign of circumcision has been replaced by baptism. So the Judaizers, though, even though they knew all that, they didn't, they didn't buy it. And so they kept on circumcising. They kept on saying, if you want to believe in Jesus, you must be circumcised, even though Jesus has fulfilled everything that circumcised represented. And the covenant sign now has been changed. You need to be circumcised to be right with God and perform all these different rituals. And so what they had done was, they had turned, circumcision had become now, because of Christ, an empty sign. And so what the, what the Judaizers then were, Paul says is that they were the, the, now the dogs. They were the unclean ones. They were the Gentiles. They were the unbelievers. Why? Because they trusted in themselves. They trusted in these religious rituals which had been done away with in Christ. And though they think that those who circumcise the flesh are the people of God, the reality is that with the coming of Christ, circumcision now is an empty ritual, and now the Judaizers are no better than those pagan religions who would cut the flesh for a religious show. So do you see what Paul is doing? Paul is absolutely destroying the Judaizers. He is punching them square in the face, and he's not holding back. How could Paul be so rude? Because the gospel is at stake. Eternal life is at stake. The stakes are high, and he's trying to get their attention. To, Listen, don't you understand what you're saying? Don't you understand who Jesus is and what he has done? And now, what you're doing is, and how it totally turns that on its head. You're making the blood of Christ of no effect by trusting in yourself. So, Paul says that they're not the circumcision, they're not the true people of God. Verse 3 Paul says, What? We. <laughs> We are the circumcision. In other words, we are the true people of God. We are the true sons of Abraham. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue. The sons of Abraham are those who place faith in Christ. We are the true circumcision. Those who trust in Christ alone are the true people of God who have experienced the circumcision of the heart by God's sovereign grace and have been born of the Spirit. And we see three effects that Paul points to here. First of all, they worship by the Spirit of God. We remember in the Old Covenant how the worship was restricted to the physical temple. God's presence was in the temple. And to get to the Holy of Holies, the high priest could only go there once a year and all these different things to make sacrifice for the people. But now in Christ, Christ is coming. Guess what? The true temple, Christ is with us now. And now we have access into the Holy of Holies because when he died on the cross, what happened? That curtain was torn in two. Now we have direct access to the Lord through whom? Through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. And we have access every day, every second of every day, by the Spirit. And so we worship now. We don't go to some, you know, we don't worship in the temple. We worship by the Spirit because we're in the Spirit. And he says here that they glory in Christ, Jesus That is, this word here, glory, is to boast. What is your boast in? And to get at that and figure out what you're boasting in, you could ask the question, what am I trusting in for my right standing before God? Whatever you're trusting in for your right standing before God, that's what you're boasting in. And Paul says, no, we're the ones who are glory, we glory in Christ, we boast in Christ and in his person and his work and emphasis alone and then he says we put no confidence in the flesh your confidence isn't in you and your perceived goodness or your works of charity or your compliance with rituals it's not in your resume it's in the perfect resume of Jesus Christ that's what he's getting across to them here and it's what he's telling the Philippians You renounce, so your confidence isn't in your flesh. You renounce not only your sin. In other words, you don't renounce merely the bad things that you've done in your life. You renounce even the good things that you've done in your life. Your righteousness, the things that you're trusting in that you think are good before a holy God, that you're going to hold up before God and say, see, God, see how good I am? You should let me into heaven now, right? Because the scales now, my good works are, have, have put the scales up here. It's like, no, you, you repent of even that. Turn from that because when you're offering that up to, to God for your right standing before God, God says, that's a stench to me. I love what Tim Keller says here. And I have a quote here. The moralist, this is the person who's basically saying, I'm a good moral person. So because I'm a good moral person, I should get to heaven. Moralists and Christians both repent of sins. They both, yeah, bad stuff is not good. (laughs) We shouldn't do bad things. But a Christian also repents of his righteousness. A moralist says, I've sinned, but look at all the good things I've done. The Christian says, I even repent of that. The only way Jesus Christ can receive me is if I completely rely on what he has done, not on anything that I have done. Amen. So application here for us. How, and this is the question that we've all had to answer at one point or another. And the question is this. How good do you have to be to get to heaven? Because we say, as Christians, we say salvation is not by works. And that's true in one sense, but in another sense, it's not true. How good do you have to be to get to heaven? How about absolutely perfect? To get to heaven, we have to have perfect righteousness because God is perfect and nothing in heaven. Can, can dwell in his presence. That's not perfect. There can be no sin before God. God requires absolute perfection. Be ye perfect, Jesus said. So how many of us here are perfect? Well, Everybody says, well, nobody's perfect. Because we all know. You talk to, the, talk to an atheist, they will tell you, yeah, nobody's perfect. Because we all know we're not perfect. But God requires perfect obedience to his law. And what does his law say? We could go through all the Ten Commandments. We just sum it up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How many of us have loved God with all of our strength for every second of every day in word, thought, and deed? How many of us have loved our neighbor? How many of us have loved our spouse or our children the way we ought to, the way God says, every second of every single day? Right? No. But then, you know, he said, you know, but yeah, I, I'm not perfect. And then, you know, I don't commit all these bad sins, these technicolor sins. So surely God's not going to hold that against me because I'm not perfect. I don't, I don't do all these technicolor sins, right, these, these really bad things. I don't do substance abuse or sexual immorality. I don't do all those bad things. I'm a good person. I pay my bills. I pay my taxes most of the time. <laughs> But see, God's law probes into our inner hearts. He, he lays us bare. So here's the question. Have you ever had a bad thought? You know, I've, all, I've often thought if, if, if you could attach a device into our head and our, our thoughts would pop up on the screen, how many of us would be like, that's not me? <laughs> I don't know who that was. It's not me. It'd be scary, wouldn't it? How about this? Have you ever lusted after someone or something? Have you ever coveted something that wasn't yours? Have you ever been angry at somebody? Have you ever gone into a fit of I mean, we could go down the list. Right? Have you ever done what God wants you to do? Have you gone to church and served in church? Have you given what you're supposed to give the church? Have you done we could go down the list? Have you loved God? No. And if you haven't, and I haven't, and here's the problem. You and I stand condemned before a holy God, and we're incurring debt every single day. We talk about the, the, the national debt. It's in what, what is it, $23 trillion now? Lost, we've lost count, haven't we? That's nothing compared to the debt we owe before God. Our debt before God is far more than trillions. It's infinite, and it, gets, it keeps getting higher. And if you try to offer up your good works to justify yourself before God or erase that mountain of debt, that too is counted as debt against you. As a matter of fact, I would say it's even worse. You remember Jesus when he was dealing with the Pharisees? He was dealing with the quote-unquote sinners in the countryside. You see, Jesus was meek and mild, gentle with the the prostitutes and so on. You know, He was gentle with them. He didn't didn't condone their sin. He wanted to push them and say, no, you can't go and sin no more. But who did he reserve his harshest words for? The religious people. The Pharisees. The ones who were trying to offer up their righteousness before him. Those were the ones that really got under Jesus' skin. Why? Because... When we do that, our confidence is in ourselves. You can say that you believe in Jesus, but if you think that faith in Jesus isn't enough, that his perfect works isn't enough to get you to heaven, that means that your faith isn't in Jesus. Ultimately, it's in yourself. You have a Savior, and it's you. Any mixture, which Jesus did 99%, like this got the what? That little 1% is the thing that you're counting on to justify you before God, and that means you're trusting in yourself. You are your Savior. So we need to renounce ourselves and rest our entire hope of salvation upon Christ alone. And now to make his point even clearer, Paul is going to show us how, how absolutely crazy it is for us to think that we could justify ourselves before God on the basis of our good works, or how religious we are. Paul's gonna use himself as an example. Verse four says if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence of flesh, I have more. Wow, Paul, that sounds pretty boastful now, but he's he's talking about who he was before Jesus, before Christ, before he was converted. Verses five and six, he offers his resume that no one could compete with. Listen, we all fall short of the glory of God. And Paul's saying, not only do you fall short of the glory of God, you fall short of my glory. You couldn't even keep up with this righteousness, which was no righteousness at all. And 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 he gives you two different things. He says, listen, first of all, talking to Jewish people, he points out his ethnic purity, his ethnic assets. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he's saying, I was a pure Jew. I wasn't a Gentile convert. I was a pure Jew. I spoke the language. I spoke Aramaic. I spoke Hebrew. I kept the customs. I came from the royal tribe of Benjamin, the, the tribe that produced the very first king in Israel, the flawed king, King Saul, as we heard about last week. And then he lists his religious assets. As to the law of Pharisee, the Pharisees were the strictest sect in Judaism. They had the law, 613 commandments of the law, but then they created other laws to make sure they didn't break that law, which, of course, those other laws were breaking that law. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. We remember who Paul was before he was the Apostle Paul. He was Saul of Tarsus. In Saul of Tarsus, as he says, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was on a mission to stamp out the Christian church. You can read about it in Acts chapters 6 through 9. He had Christians killed. He had Christians rounded up and thrown into prison. That's who he was. He was totally zealous. Nobody could outdo him for zeal. He laid waste the church. And as to righteous under law, he says he was blameless. That is, if anybody... Nobody could go to him and say, "Paul, you blew it right there. You broke that commandment." No, nobody could say as touching the law, nobody the outward conformity to the law. The outward works of the law, not the inner heart. Nobody could 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 point blame to him. Paul's point then is not only that is not is that not only could righteousness of Judaizers or you and I not stand before God, but it couldn't even compare with Paul. It can't even compare with Paul. And So what changed for Saul of Tarsus? What was it that changed Saul? It was the but-God gospel. As he's on his way to persecute more Christians, to throw more Christians in jail, what happens? Christ appears to him on the Damascus Road and his eyes Paul realizes now that Christ is the Savior and and he's converted now by God's grace and by God's spirit. And this one who was a persecutor of the church, this one who trusted in all of his, his ethnic assets and his religious assets, now he said, that's nothing, that doesn't compare to Christ, it's Christ. And he gave it all up. He realized that it was in vain. In that moment of blinding glory, the prideful Saul of Tarsus melted under the blazing holy fire of the sovereign grace of God. And he realized, as Isaiah said, that his righteousness was like filthy rags before a holy God. He realized that everything he trusted in was utterly worthless before God. What about you? Is everything worthless in comparison to God. That takes us to our second point. We must value Christ more than anything else. Verses 7 and 8, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul here, for those of you who are accountants, is using accounting terms. And he's making the point that all of his spiritual assets that he valued more than anything else we're on the negative side of the ledger. If you write down the ledger; it's all negative. There's no positive. And instead of bringing him profit before God, they put him in debt. They were all loss compared to the surpassing worth he says of knowing Christ. Of being in relationship with Him is far more valuable than anything else. Why? Because in Christ, all of his debt had been paidly fully paid by Christ, who demonstrated how much he valued us. And that while we were still sinners, while we were still boasting in ourselves, he died for us. Not only does Paul consider all those things lost, verse 8, he says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. What things did Paul lose? Well, it goes back to verses 6 and 8. His spiritual resume, he gave up his ethnic pride. His fellow Jews would be incensed. They would try to actually kill him. How could you betray us? How could you betray your people by running after this Christ? You know, that's a, that's a thing in, in, in the world today, still, isn't it? Think about people in Muslim countries that come to Christ, they give up everything. They, they're called betrayers of their people. Same thing for Jewish believers today, they're called betrayers of their people. We could give many other examples. Paul says he gave up his ethnic pride. He gave up his his career as a prestigious religious leader. He was on his way probably to being a high priest someday. He gave it all up. He went from someone that people would respect and love to one that they would try to kill as he preached about Christ. And not only did he count it all lost, but he says it was all rubbish. I like that word rubbish, but it doesn't really capture what Paul's saying. <laughs> the Greek word, as commentators tell us, means this. Quote, it is the quote, vilest refuse of anything. It is the worst excrement. That's poo-poo for the faint of heart. So. We can just say that Paul considers all of that a big, smoldering, stinking pile of garbage, of poo-poo, compared to gaining Christ. Now, I know that's not very pleasant, but that's what Paul's saying. That's the comparison. That is, pick the worst possible thing you could think of, compared to Christ. You know, I thought about this with this whole, his ethnic pride and the things how he was willing to give up and how contrary that is to what we're seeing in culture today with this whole thing of critical race theory and and how the color of somebody's skin is a thing that determines your identity. It's a thing about you and a thing that that either justifies you or condemns you and, and all these different things and how that is not, how the color of skin, your ethnic identity is not the defining aspect of who you are. Christ is. so are you willing to give that up? Are you willing to say the color of my skin isn't the most important thing or defining aspect about my life or my ethnicity or whatever the case might be? Are you trusting in that? Christ is our identity. Paul says, I gave up everything for him. And Paul says, highlights not only the insufficiency of our, of our righteousness before God, but the absolute offense that it is to God. The things that we place in our confidence in apart from Christ for right standing before God are the most horrible smelling garbage to him. Isaiah compares it to, as I quoted earlier, a filthy rag. And the filthy rag there, again, it's not a very pleasant image. It's a menstrual cloth for women. Well, who else would it be if it's a menstrual cloth? It would be for women. But in today's culture, maybe we have to be specific. And then we look to the cross, where Christ was crucified, not merely for the obvious sins, but for our self-righteousness. On the cross, Christ became not merely the murderer, the adulterer, the liar, the idolater, the God-hater, but... Also the self-righteous moralist who, though appearing clean on the outside, is full of dead men's bones who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. In other words, us. And now, when we're saved by God's grace alone and turned from our sin and our self-righteousness, what do we gain? We gain Christ. Which means, in part, as Paul says in verse 9, that we receive the righteousness of God that comes how? Through our good works? Is that how the righteousness comes? No, through faith in Christ. So here's the deal. God requires absolute perfection. He requires absolute, perfect, pristine righteousness in order to get to heaven, to be in his presence. And the only one who possesses that perfect righteousness is God himself. And so what God requires, he supplies. And he gives it to us freely where? He gives it to us in and only in The person of the eternal son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself, brought himself down from the glories of heaven, took to himself human flesh, and he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. He obeyed the law perfectly at every single point. And now his perfect obedience now is credited to us. Not only is that perfect obedience credited to us, but he was perfectly obedient, but he also died for all of our disobedience. And the great exchange has happened now. The great exchange. We're on the cross. He became a mass of sin. He took all of my self-righteous sin and bore it all. He bore the curse that I deserved. And in exchange, what do I get? The perfect, pristine, the royal garbs of the king. The righteousness, the pure righteousness of Christ. And that's how God sees me now as his child. So Christian, you know, this isn't just a, a message for people who don't know Christ. This is for us. Because the temptation for us is to say, we, we start living the Christian life. God brings us to the saving faith. That we start living the Christian life on our own strength. that we start looking down at others who we don't think are have, have, have achieved the level of holiness that we think we've achieved. And we start looking down upon them and we start... Relating to God on the basis of our own works. Well, look at I, I've done this, Lord, and I haven't sinned. I haven't sinned here, and I haven't sinned there. Look at all I've done, and we start holding that up before God, and God says, "Don't hold that up to me. You can't get any more right before God than what you are right now in Christ. Trust in Christ. Look to Christ. Fix your eyes there, not here, and rest." Rest in who you are in Christ by His grace alone. And now, yes, go and and grow in holiness. Go and obey the Lord. Go and do good works. Not to get anything. Not not because you're trying to earn brownie points with God, but because you have everything in Christ. And the Father loves you. He's not going to love you any less. And we obey Him Because we love him. And when we disobey, we're grieved. Why? Because I've grieved the one that I love. And I don't want to do that. (laughs) Who are we trusting in? We are all building our spiritual resumes. And they're either going to be filled with our works of righteousness, which are imperfect and cannot stand the scrutiny of divine justice and are putrid before him, or... We can fill the spiritual resume with the perfect works of Jesus Christ that is ours through faith alone in Christ alone. What is your confidence in today? Which resume are you going to hold up to God? If you haven't already, I plead with you to throw out that old resume. Get rid of it. Get rid of it and turn to Christ. Say, Jesus, I want your resume in my name to be written there because it's going to be written in your blood. That's the resume that I want. It's yours today. You just have to receive it. You just got to say, yeah, Lord, I, I am self-righteous. I'm trusting in myself. I, I have sinned against you. Forgive me. I turn from that, and I'm trusting in you alone. And if you have, let us keep going back to the spiritual resume of Christ and then rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life forever. That he who began a good work in you will complete it to the end. Rejoice in the righteousness of Christ that is yours by faith alone. And let us keep trusting in and pointing to that righteousness, not our own righteousness. Because that's where our comfort is. That's where our assurance is. That's where our hope is. Our confidence must be in Christ alone, not only to get us into the kingdom, but to sustain us every single day in our walk with Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this perfect righteousness that is ours, Uh, not because we have done anything, but because you've done everything for us and you've given us the perfect righteousness of Christ as we trust in Christ by your grace alone. Help us now, Lord, to really take hold of that and not to move away from it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.